Last time, we chatted with housing advocate Roger Valdez, who argued in favor of encouraging more construction of housing of all sorts and at all income levels. We named the episode The Architecture of Discomfort because Roger revealed to us why he is attracted to places like Seattle, places that are growing in urban density. He told us that his Christian faith suggested that his path should cause him to, quote, love his neighbor. But he shared also what a perilous statement that was. He suggested that one needs neighbors, ideally lots and lots of them, in order to live this credo, because if there's not any neighbors, then who do you love? He also described how newly built communities, which in Seattle tend to be dense, can cause all sorts of discomfort, mostly because with more density, you're just bumping into and speaking with many more people. Today, we're going to talk with a couple people who help new urban communities come into being and how naming, storytelling, and marketing may reduce some of the perils and discomfort of living in a new, perhaps denser community for those who live there, but also for those who develop them. Our guests are Allison Jeffries and Jim Goldberg of Red Propeller, specialists in real estate branding, marketing, and placemaking. We will learn how Allison and Jim help builders and developers make their new housing more inviting places to live or to live near. Along with their team at Red Propeller, Allison and Jim have advised developers on over 55,000 apartments, condos, resort communities, and single-family homes in 85 cities across North and Central America, including Mexico, Canada, and the Caribbean, propelling over $15 billion in real estate value, mostly residential, but also mixed-use and municipalities. Our Seattle listeners may be familiar with names like the Danforth, Novel Bishop Arts, Seabrook out on the coast, Luma, Amley Arc, Pike Motorworks, Via 6, Capitol Hill Station, and so forth. Allison and Jim are the people who help name these places, and today we're going to get to learn how and why they did this. We're going to explore how a new place, such as an apartment or condo building or even an entire new neighborhood, is visualized from the point of view of those who live there long before the places are ever constructed. We'll explore how the spirit of neighborhoods change when new people and new places move into them. We'll look at what can be learned about society by looking at new ways that people inhabit spaces, the ones that are being built today. And then also going to look at the places of tomorrow, maybe how they can better serve the people who live there. And stick around. At the end of today's show, you're going to have an opportunity to receive information from Allison and Jim on Generation Z, a study that they're working on. Jim? Allison? Hi, Edward. Hi. Thank you for being here. Thanks for Absolutely. having us. Um, Allison, what's your title um, uh, at Red Propeller? Well, so at Red Propeller, we all have interesting titles. That's the first thing that someone has to do when they join our company is they have to come up with their title. And for most people, that's very stressful. Um, so my title is uh, is uh, the Director of Possibilities. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Jim, what's your title? Uh, I am the Customer Experience Lieutenant. Okay. And then how did you wind up in placemaking and real estate marketing? As a child, I'm sure you didn't say, when I grow up, I'm going to be a placemaker and a real estate marketer. So what brought you? No, here? no. In fact, I uh, went to college and majored in German, which is very useful. And when I graduated with my expensive degree, my parents were very concerned that I had no direction. And uh, so they sent me off to a uh, career counselor who said, hey, how about marketing? And I said, well, you know, I've never taken a business class in my life. I'm a liberal arts kind of girl. All right, let's give this a shot. So um, so I started working in a urban planning civil engineering firm in Philadelphia and uh, that was where I got started with this. Moved out to the West Coast and um, uh, decided I was going to join the ski industry and, and uh, uh, leave the corporate world behind, only to find out that the uh, ski area was owned by the McCaw family, who then merged with Harbor Properties. 
um, which is, is was Stimps and Bullets company here in Seattle. And voila, I was in the uh, back into the real estate world, which um, which was great and uh, was really quite quite a fun thing. And from there, it's just been a a long road of interesting city development, both locally, regionally, and and now around the country. Awesome. You're in a great place for that, obviously, because yes. there's been so much development in yeah. the last five years, but the last 20 years. Yeah. 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 Jim, how about you? Uh, well, what did you want to be when you were um, <laughs> small child? Uh, well, I actually initially wanted to be uh, an architect. And uh, my senior year in high school, I, uh, I did an internship in an architect's office in uh, downtown Edmonds. And I didn't really connect with sort of the uh, the environment, the sort of work style and work environment uh, of architecture. It was a little a little too subdued um, for I think my my personality. Uh, but I always loved the built environment and and um, the idea of imagining a place and then and then seeing it all the way through to to coming to life. Um, so I had a, a circuitous route, as you know, spending a little more than 20 years at Nordstrom. And then you were my conduit out of consumer product uh, development and, and marketing and really into real estate. Yeah. Um, you know, you and I had a, a relationship personally and, and you helped uh, my family buy and sell uh, real estate. And, and uh, when you were starting EK Real Estate Group was, um, you know, just a, re- a really interesting opportunity to sort of parlay my background in consumer product development, um, kind of understanding c- consumer habits and and leveraging that to develop product, which uh, I quickly learned in partnership with you, wasn't necessarily how real estate development tended to think. Um, how, so what was the difference? Uh, well, I think I think when we uh, when I when I first started getting into real estate and and uh, specifically on the on the new development side, um, it's very much just sort of a build it you they will come sort of mentality and sort of a a we've got from a development standpoint we've got uh, sort of a pro forma that we have to hit we've got programs that we just typically stamp out. But not necessarily first and foremost, sort of putting the the customer experience and and really understanding who that customer is and developing uh, product to that like, which is you know really parlays into to how my title came to be is customer experience lieutenant and and coming from um, a retail background at Nordstrom, I didn't know how to think any differently than mm-hmm. first and foremost, sort of understanding who your customer is and and understanding who they are and how they how they place value in in their living and and buying decisions and and then translating that into product strategy. So you must ask a lot of questions. Ask a lot of questions. <laughs> it was funny. We were knows what people want, right? Exactly. Yep, we yes. were we were on a call yesterday with a with a client. Uh, a new client that was getting to know us, and he was a really interesting character from Houston. And, uh, you know, he said something to us about, you know, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's listeners um, and there's knowers. Um, and he said, I really, really like to surround myself with listeners and people who who are curious. And uh, in our world, we do a lot of listening and a lot of questions. That's, that's exactly why I did this podcast, because yeah. I have so many questions, yeah. all these amazing people. Great. So, so um, Red Propeller... How did that name? Because I, you guys are in the creative. It's a career, creative field, so you're coming up with names. And so, what, what was that? Well, 
so I started the company 11 years ago on May 1st. Um, and the idea was, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, we're going to be this creative company that's also a consulting company. And so it needs to be a, a good, memorable name. And, and we believe, and I believe, um, that all names should have a story and that the story should resonate with what you do or what your built environment is and who your customer is. And that the, the name can be a, a piece that connects all of those groups together. So Red Propeller is a, is a um, self-made acronym that doesn't really exist. Red for real estate development. I thought it was because of May Day. May, <laughs> May Day, May Day. Um, and then Propeller is, uh, is something that, that moves something forward. It pushes something forward. Um, and so the idea is that we work with the real estate development community um, to help them move their projects forward in the market. And, and that has been a, a compelling message to people. And we have a, we have a, a propeller itself in our logo, of course, because um, I also really like boats. Okay. So <laughs> that's part of it too. Awesome. And so what, does, what role does silliness have in like coming up with things like that? Because it's, you know, well, like giving yourself, your brain that space to you could give sort your, of imagine a name like Red Propeller. Yeah. You know, I think um, there were margaritas involved, to be <laughs> completely honest. And um, I had a short list of five names, I think. And my husband actually said to me, we're buying a URL tonight, so you've got to decide. Okay, so. Um, so there was some silliness there. But I think that, that names that have a little, were appropriate, that have a little bit of whimsy to them, um, resonate with people more so than boring corporate name X that you forgot five minutes from now. And I noticed on the website, there's your name, your title, and then also your favorite propellant. Which yes. Is, and everyone has a, what is your favorite propellant? Mine was the Negroni. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Preferably in Italy. <laughs> in, or, yes. Yeah. Definitely in Allison. Italy. Um, I, I'm pretty sure mine is the Manhattan. Okay. Um, it's not quite red, but it's a little, little red tinge. Okay. Well, <laughs> speaking of names, Dale Carnegie famously said that people, everyone loves the sound of their own name. And I'm wondering if you can give an example of uh, sort of the difference in moving from the name of your business to your projects, what a difference a name made on the success of a project? Sure. There's a, a apartment community in South Lake Union um, named True North. And uh, True North was developed by Holland Partner Group. And the, the positioning, the idea behind the building, so relating the, the story of a place to its name to its audience. It's a great example of that because the idea when we first started with Holland on that project was if REI were an apartment building, what would it be? Mm-hmm. And um, the name, so the, the building has a climbing wall and it has outdoor pizza ovens and all the things you a gear room, things you need to go out and explore the Northwest. And the name True North is, um, uh, there's True North and Magnetic North um, used in wayfinding and orienteering. Um, and it, it spoke to the to the idea of of living in the outdoors um, and and really absorbing all that the Northwest has to offer. So it it really plays to the to the character of the building, but also to the people who live there that enjoy going out and doing things and like the fact that they there's a place they can dry their tent after they go camping because it's always going to be wet no matter what time of the year you go camping awesome. in the Northwest. Okay. And that has a sign in front that looks like, is that the one that looks yeah. like a national park it sign? It looks like a national park sign. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Jim? Yeah. Uh, you know, we've had uh, so much opportunity to de- develop some really interesting uh, names. Um, and as Allison mentioned earlier, I think that the names that 
we feel probably some of the the most connection to are are names that that really have really strong stories that are are rooted through the built environment and I'm sitting here with a with a coffee table book for an Amley Arc uh, okay. project that we worked on, which is a 40-story high-rise tower right in the Denny Triangle, okay. sitting on uh, Bourne and Howell. And this was a really fun, interesting project for us to get our heads into. Uh, we were involved very, very early in the development process. The developer actually uh, acquired a project that already had sort of a master use to it. So it had a little bit of a, a framework and a skin, but um, it certainly didn't have a, a story and an identity that drove all of the sort of bit pieces and parts that were going to come together um, to sort of form this community. Um, and they really wanted us to, to think and push the envelope a little bit on sort of what this project could be. There were a few kind of constraints that came with the project that we had to sort of overcome. It was also a really hyper-competitive market that they were going to be uh, entering into. When was this? Uh, so we started this project probably in, gosh, probably early 2015. Yeah. Um, and it it delivered at the end of 2017. Okay. Um, and competitive meaning there were a lot of other apartment buildings coming online. There were a online. ton of towers, uh, new projects downtown that were going to be coming online and competing. And, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, you know, 40-story towers in downtown, you know, generally have a... Uh, similar sort of framework, if you will, sure. that they're they're a new high rise, uh, you know, with sort of nuanced difference there. So, how did the um, name Amley Arc play into the? process. Sure. So, uh first and foremost, we really got our heads into into what the who the audience was that could be attracted to this particular site in this particular location at the time uh Facebook had just launched their their big office in the Metropolitan uh North Towers um right nearby. It was sort of emerging as a as a little bit of a creative um bent in the in the technology world. Um, we looked at all of the competitors in this what we call sort of the arms race of of luxury coming into the marketplace. Um, and then we looked at the the sort of in-migration of people coming to the city and moving to the city that were creating sort of a dynamic, you know, change in, in our neighborhood. And what we, what we understood and realized is that uh, there's a group of people that if they could find a really great loft um, uh, product in, in Pioneer Square, they would have loved it. But that's just a, you know, a really rare commodity. Um, so this project sitting right in the Denny Triangle next to the rebar had this opportunity to sort of absorb that context of the neighborhood. Um, and so the, the strategy for the project was Seattle's edgiest tower. Um, and it was sort of reimagining a edgy loft kind of almost deconstructed warehouse experience into a 41-story oh. tower. So that was sort of the impetus behind the strategy. Um, and that drove interior design. It drove amenity space planning. It drove sort of the overall layout of the of the entire building. So when it came time to, to name it and give it a, a brand, um, we started to think about sort of these elements that, that you know, we're rooted in in this strategy. And one of the really interesting things where this project sits on the on the Howell and, and Boren intersection is uh, if you look at the Seattle street grid from a bit bird's eye view, as you know, sort of three founding fathers of Seattle couldn't agree on a uh, on a singular street grid. Mm -hmm. um, and so the the street grids of Seattle shifts twice, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we sit right on the border where the Seattle street grid sort of shifts and arcs. 
uh, about 33 degrees. Okay. Um, and there's also sort of the idea that we were sort of reimagining a different approach to a high-rise development um, and sort of giving it giving it a, a twist or a, or a change, if you will. Okay. Um, so the idea of ARC um, and the name ARC really speaks to the idea of, of shift and change and sort of uh, a reimagining. And, and uh, we also have a pretty signature uh, architectural element on the top of our building that juxtaposes our, our sort of square facade with a uh, curved, um, almost warehouse-like expression on the, on the top What's of the building. What's the art up there? ARC. Oh, arc. Yeah, arc. sorry, okay. sorry. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the the whole top floor is imagined as a almost a warehouse that got plopped on top of the building, and it's very wide open, and all of the sort of exoskeleton of the project is exposed, huh, and okay. it and it has this really arc. And then what's Amley? Amley is actually the name of the, ne- the developer. So Amley is a is a big national uh, REIT uh, developer, um, which is kind of interesting because they they didn't typically stray a little bit from from kind of a typical. Um, program that they do. They do really beautiful work, but the local Seattle Amley team kind of understood the opportunity to be really hyper-local and, and differentiated in the Seattle marketplace. Awesome. And then you brought yeah. in some sort of a book? I did, yeah. So this is, uh, this is actually something that just sort of inspires me every day because it was such a such a unique project and such a, a great opportunity for us to really get our heads into sort of thinking outside of the box and, and re- again, getting back to the idea of really understanding our, our who our customer is okay. um, and sort of thinking about how how uh, a commodity type of, of apartment project might sort of start to think about um, honing in a little bit on on specific audience segments that, that want something a little different, uh, a little edgier. Um, so we, uh, through the whole uh, exercise of two and a half years working on this project, developing the product and the, and ultimately the brand, we sort of captured different pieces and parts and we created this little coffee table book that little. sort of showcases, <laughs> showcases, not so little, um, but it showcases sort of the, the evolution and, and design of this project um, from start to finish. And so why I like it is, is for me, it, it really... Um, inspires me every day to kind of think big and and think outside of the box and kind of push the envelope in some cases. Yep. Um, and this project has been uh, very successful. It launched into the marketplace, um, can, competing with uh, with a whole host of of different towers. Um, and what's interesting about it is is the customers who love it absolutely love it. Right, it's it's absolutely the place for them. And they really feel like finally a product has sort of spoken to their personal style and value system. So is it over the pastrami store? And it's the right next to the pastrami store. Okay, so the pastrami store still, the, the, store still the, the still there. The corned beef and, yep. Awesome, it's, wow. It's I haven't been there in there. years. Yeah. No, no it's, uh, yep. And in fact, I I now live just adjacent to this to this tower. And uh, so I look at it every day. So it's a, a sense of personal pride. Very nice. And then, Allison, you brought in something as well. Yes, well, Jim has has his version of it stuck to his coffee table book as well. Um, so we both have these these uh, fortune cookie fortunes that we have had taped to our computers or phones or whatever for I don't know how many years now, like nine years maybe. So during the recession, because uh, Red Propeller started in two thousand eight, which was a great time to start a real estate related company in Seattle. <laughs> And um, and during the recession, things got got you know very challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and so most of the time, we would eat leftovers at, over our 
our computers because we couldn't certainly couldn't afford to go out for lunch. Um, but I guess we must have splurged and we we went and we had Chinese food and uh, we have these these um, fortunes and they just seemed so appropriate on that day nine years ago. And mine says, be generous and the favor will be returned. And during the recession, we did lots and lots of favors for developers and um, real estate friends and family. Um, because well, no, all of them was suffering. Yeah, everybody mm-hmm. was suffering and yeah. no one had any money. And we all had a lot of time to have coffee, you know, <laughs> and um, and it was uh, it was challenging. So it was interesting because we, we thought, OK, well, you know, we're going to we're going to be the good kind people that we are and we're going to help others and someday maybe that'll come back to us and that's not why we did it at all we did it because that's who we are but it was interesting that this was my fortune that day and I've had this on my computer for nine years and so it it reminds me even when times are really good that it's important to to always go back to who you are and and be you know be that person who can be humble and kind and helpful and that that's inherently part of who we are as a company and and Jim's Jim's, uh, his came on the same day, so. Um, what does yours say, Jim? Mine was, uh, you will be unusually successful in business, so. Wow. It, we were hopeful on that day. Of, it was very hopeful, <laughs> and it, it gave sort of a, a light at the end of the tunnel, if you will. Awesome. Well, good. Well, let's talk about failure. <laughs> so um, just for fun, um, it, um, we could look at the Seattle Commons. So in one of our podcasts last year, we had um, Christopher Blado and Weston Brinkley, they're Atlas Obscura tour guides, and they do a tour of the Seattle Commons project. It was, um, just as a reminder, it was Paul Allen's mammoth attempt to create what was described as Seattle's version of Central Park. And of course, the initiative failed. And then I think Paul Allen, as a result, was left with just a massive amount of real estate in South Lake Union. Mm-hmm. Poor guy. <laughs> um, yeah. So prior to launching Rip Repeller and after Harbor Properties, you were involved with Vulcan. I was. So you probably saw some of that before the recession of 2008, yes, obviously. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so what, what did you do for Vulcan? Well, so I was a marketing person in charge of residential um, as well as overall neighborhood marketing. Um, and a lot of marketing is a loose term. A lot of people think of marketing as advertising, and that's just a tiny part of it. A lot of it is understanding your customer and, and then um, thinking about the built environment and how that relates to the customer. Um, and actually at Harbor, we were Vulcan's partner um, since about the year 2000 or 99. Um, and so we were involved in South Lake Union for a very long time. And in the early days... Um, so at Harbor, we worked on a project with Vulcan called Alcyon Apartments, which is in the Cascade neighborhood right on, on the Cascade Park and Playground. And that was the first market rate apartment building in um, South Lake Union. And uh, the, the market rate one. for our guests who don't know what that means as opposed so, to? So market rate versus affordable subsidized. housing. Mm-hmm. Um, so not subsidized housing, but um, available at the at the rate that the market is currently renting at. Um, because and, the implications was such an undesirable location that the only people that would live there is that there's a neighborhood of last resort. Well, it, it was a neighborhood that no one could even identify. I mean, you would say to people, well, we're going to do this project in South Lake Union. And long-term Seattleites would say, well, where is that? And say, well, that's the neighborhood that's at the south end of Lake Union. And they said, well, there's nothing there. So, well, there is. There's a lot there. There were, there were some historic buildings that are still there that are... Um, have always been uh, not necessarily 
officially affordable housing, but they have been um, at rates that allow for lots of different kinds of people to live there. Um, there is affordable housing in the neighborhood. Um, and there were a lot of dilapidated warehouses. And um, there wasn't a reason to go to South Lake Union other than REI. And if you told someone, well, that's where REI's flagship store is, it's, oh, that's what that's called. Oh, okay. Um, which is really funny today to be able to say, oh, well, you know, no one knew where South Lake Union was. They've certainly figured out where it is now. So, but you were, you were <laughs> instrumental um, to, in helping that happen. By, yeah. Yeah, so. yeah, I was part of a team. So, um, it so was how, a great team. Through, yeah. Um, and, and working um, at Vulcan, I would say, has uh, been a, the highlight of my career in many ways. Um, Why? Uh, because you were changing a part of the city. Um, and not in a not in a negative way. I mean, there we're taking parking lots and old buildings that, I mean, that were just so rancid inside of them. Some of these old warehouses, that, you know, you you couldn't go in them without a mask on, <laughs> and you're changing it to be something that had um, great value. And and you know, people today say, oh well, it's a neighborhood without a soul, or um, give it some time. It 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 needs to gain some patina, uh, which it will. Over time, but if you look, you know, 20 years ago at what was there versus what is there today, um, it's a vast improvement to the city uh, from a neighborhood that that was sort of the forgotten neighborhood, and with the way that 99 was um, uh, and I5, it was a neighborhood that at one time um, Cascade, which is in South Lake Union, was the second oldest residential neighborhood in Seattle. And it's actually the geographic center of Seattle, but. Um, it was cut off by freeway construction. Mm. And so it was the neighborhood that kind of got left behind. Um, and now it's the neighborhood that's, that's really leading the way in a, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it, okay. was, it was great fun. We had, uh, we had these three renderings that we had done, and we, we traveled all around to great places in the United States and gathered inspiration about streetscapes and things. And we, we created uh, these renderings working actually um, with uh, Gigi Lowe uh, was part of it and uh, real retail at the time and uh, a whole variety of folks who are still around today but maybe in different seats mm -hmm. uh, with different hats. Uh, and we had these renderings and we'd show them to people and say, this is what this neighborhood's going to look like. And, and really it was from the street perspective. And people just sort of wouldn't really take us seriously um, Jim Mueller, uh, who was used to be at Vulcan, and I had a meeting with Starbucks, and I said, "Oh, you know, Starbucks, you want you're going to want to be in our great neighborhood. It's <laughs> going to be so awesome." And they're like, "Well, maybe we could open a drive-through for people that that drive through it, but there's nobody's ever going to go there." Wow. Um, and I'm not sure how many Starbucks there are now in South Lake Union, three or four, mm. but uh, it's just so interesting how much change there is, and now. Driving through it, I drive through South Lake Union every day on my way to work, and I think, oh, this is just is incredible to well, see the amount of change. So it's so fascinating, again, sort of getting back to creativity. Paul Allen was someone who was kind of definitely a visionary from Microsoft. He's an incredible man. But then the EMP, the Experience Music Project, which was, again, at the edge of a nothing neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, Frank Gehry bringing in a globally known architect, investing in the Cinerama. I mean, all of the stuff is in, interest in futurism. Mm -hmm. Right, being Very future so. future minded himself, and then also willing to put his money at risk. Yeah, and and I think um, I think he was a very private man. Um, it was very sad that he passed away. Mm. Um, he was a very private person, and he followed his passions. And he he was very passionate about his city, and and you can see that in all the contributions he made to the arts here, to the built environment, to 
um, the Allen Institute for Brain Science that's studying the human brain and making all of those that information available to brain scientists around the world to try to solve things like um, dementia. Um, you know, he was a, he was a person who cared very deeply about this city and its people, and you know, the rescuing the the Seahawks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, and a deep, deep impact in one yeah, neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, incredible. And um, and then you know, of course, there's other developers in that neighborhood as well, and. It is becoming a, um, it, it's a, it's a pretty incredible, people that we work with all around the country come to see what has happened in this city. And so I think a lot of people it. here don't realize that um, we sit with this, this amazing example of urban revitalization right within our own town. So unimaginable probably when you were started what we have now. You except, know, except you were imagining it. We were imagining it. And, um, and it was so fun um, to we we built the South Lake Union Discovery Center, which is different now because the neighborhood is is there now. You don't need all of that, but we had this whole experience to help people to visualize what was going to happen here. And we didn't know what each of the buildings was going to look like. It was more as this is the experience of this place, and this is a forward looking place. And I think it's really um, appropriate that now it's a place that houses companies and from the biotech companies to the Amazons of the world that are working to change how we experience the world every day. Globally, yeah. 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 So, I don't know, see, it gives me chills. I just, mm. um, <laughs> I still, I just love it. And we've worked on um, lots of other projects in South Lake Union for other developers as well. And But uh, to be able to have that kind of impact on your city is, a, I think, a once-in-a-lifetime thing. And It's um, wonderful. And then the Gates Foundation is nearby, and that yep. probably is, it's interesting that both of those men sort of located sort of adjacent to one another. So. Yeah, and, and, the, and the impact is global. It's huge. Yeah. And and um, it all comes back to our our little city. I'm, I'm not a native Seattleite, um, but I've been here for 23 years now. And um, I'm starting to be very old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the um, the pride in being a Seattleite and seeing the things that happen in our city is, um, you know, something I feel every day. I can so, see it. Okay. Yeah. So, Jim, you and I sort of got working together on the Pike Pine Corridor. So it's shifting from South Lake Union to Capitol Hill. And um, and we worked on a project called Trace Lofts, which was like 200 plus adaptive reuse loft departments and a new building to support a developer. And then it became kind of known as the Pike Pine Corridor. And then I think I noticed on your website recently, you worked on another apartment project and your husband also has a gym kind of in there. So you also have, just as Allison has really invested a lot of herself in South Lake Union, it seems like we worked very hard in the Pike Pine Corridor before it was really known as that, and then things have really transformed since then. So I'm just curious, you know, thinking about transformation of a neighborhood and going back to working with you on Trace and kind of what's happened, what's transpired in the last 12 or 13 years. Yeah. Well, there's definitely uh, an amazing amount of change that has happened in, in you know, kind of dating myself, what what feels like a really short time. Our office is actually uh, just a block away from Rivals, uh, right in the heart of the Pike Pine as well. Um, so Shout right out now, to Rival, Rival Fitness. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, Best gym in Capitol Hill. There you go. Um, so we live and breathe it every day. I think back in, in 2005, 2006, when we were, when we were starting Trace and and sort of had that vision of, I think, what that neighborhood could become. Um, I think at that time we were talking a lot about um, the creative class and that uh, that sort of new psychographic of, of people that were, were going to sort of come into this neighborhood 
um, and sort of embrace the grit and history and culture, but then they start to, you know, sort of infuse uh, a new level of, of energy. And it was, it was, uh, you know, an interesting time back then, um, you know, as we, as we started launching Trace and things were happening in that sort of 12th and, and Madison kind of corridor. I remember we um, walked into that big old building on the corner there at 12th and Madison and it yeah. was like full of dust completely filled with like right. old um, showing machines. Sewing machines. Yeah, and, just piles of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and of course that just immediately sparked our creative juices of, you know, we got to hold on to this. All of this is is just interesting fodder for the for our story and, and a connection to our past, but kind of leverage how we how we sort of think about our, our future. Yep, and then those all a lot of those elements were um, sort of repurposed into the lobby as artwork. Absolutely. Right? So, and Absolutely. then Pike Motorworks. So that's a project looks like you guys worked on. We did, yeah. So we uh, we helped the the Wolf Company um, launch that project uh, into the marketplace. You know, really interesting dynamic there in terms of um, even in in just that short period of time from from Trace Lofts to to Pike Motorworks. Um, Pike I was just to interrupt you. How was Trace sure. Lofts name? Because I think that the naming of things is a fascinating sure. thing that you guys are deeply involved in. Yeah. So Trace came from the Trace Athletic Manufacturing Company that at one time uh, occupied that historic building on on 12th. And we liked the idea of one paying homage to some of the history in the neighborhood and then the idea of kind of tracing back to roots and, and paths of... Uh, I think there was Wally yeah. Trace. Yeah. yeah, I, remember. yeah. I think it yeah. was still around. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so Pike Motorworks sort of took over the what used to be the old uh, BMW site um, and we've got Ava next door to that um, that took over the Mercedes uh, location and that whole area was you know historically Seattle's auto row mm-hmm. and what was what was interesting with the with the Pike Motorworks uh, project and I think they did a really nice job of of giving that project some character, um, and some connection um, back to the history and, and past, um, but it it's really sort of the new generation of of Capitol Hill and and the Pike Pine, um, the immense influx of people moving into the city um, for employment, and there's sort of two phenomenons that happen that we observe um, with people moving into the city. You've got folks who who move into the city um, and tend to land in neighborhoods that are are most proximate to their workplace, um, which is part of why you know South Lake Union is burgeoning, obviously with with such a large employment node uh, driven by Amazon, but not just Amazon and and sort of the biomedical sciences and and other sort of tech philanthropic yes yep. that all land there, um, and then you've got other people who come into our into our city. Um, and seek out lifestyle plays, um, what we call sort of they're they're seeking out um, neighborhoods that are more um, kind of reflective of their their personalities. And and Capitol Hill just has um, you know continued to be sort of the heart and soul of of this the city's uh, entertainment dining district. Um, and that's that's absolutely changing. And there's there's all kinds of you know new pockets of interesting things that happen throughout our city from. Georgetown and Columbia City to now White Center mm-hmm. um, to West Seattle to Ballard. I mean, we're we're definitely a city of of neighborhoods worth um, exploring. Um, but Capitol Hill and and um, that whole Pike Pine area has just attracted a 
an audience that that is is seeking some some authenticity in in their neighborhood experience and and you might start to argue that we've lost a lot of that that sort of authentic vibe of of us originals that that sort of knew what the pike pine was back then but for for the new folks coming into the city they still really appreciate and value um the the character and the the experiences that the Pike Pine and Capitol Hill um, can offer to them, and Pike Motorworks being, you know, one one project in that in that mix, um, you know, attracts that audience who absolutely kind of seek um, something that that sort of reflects their their personal brand and personality. If that makes sense, it does. Yeah. Okay. And then uh, and then physically, how 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 does the physical place of Pike Motorworks reflect that? In terms of amenities or visually or yeah, um, so I it, think it retains uh, some of the historic structure right in front. Did, there's yeah. like a courtyard. Yeah, yeah, there's some of the facades. The original vision for that project had more of a pedestrian um, connection thoroughfare between Pike and Pine, mm-hmm. um, and it was originally visioned to be kind of an open air, inward facing retail experience um, at the ground floor with the with the apartments um, kind of sitting above. And uh, sort of uh, partway through that process, um, Red Hook came in and, and wanted to take that whole uh, retail um, space that they now have their flagship um, brewery experience on on Pike there. Um, so that sort of changed the the dynamic um, there. But what's what's interesting about that is um, one, I think that they've done a, a nice job with their with their build out and and their you know connecting back into the to the neighborhood um, and what what's really interesting too is that that apartment community um, the the um, homes that sit above the brewery um, have an amenity space um, an interior amenity space that is on the second floor above the brewery um, and there's a sort of a catwalk pedestrian walkway that's really interesting inside the building hmm. that if you live in that part of the building you actually walk through this catwalk every day through the retail space through above, above the retail oh, space and sort huh. of wide open into to the brewery. So you, okay. So the energy is, so you can't wear is a skirt. always there. You will. <laughs> <laughs> at, your, at, your, at your own risk. <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, just popping from all these specific and amazing examples of neighborhoods and places to a little bit about your process at Red Propeller. Um, one question is, is do you, do, do, you know, is the work that you do, does it reflect your client's vision of a place, meaning the developer that you serve, that, that hires you? Is it your vision or is it the vision of the people that will ultimately be living there? I think it's all of the above, actually. Um, when we so how, how does that get all sorted out in through your process then? Because so, it's complex. Yeah. Um, so when we start a project and we work on a project in pre-development, so early in the stages of what does this project want to be, and we do a lot of that work, um, and we do that all around the country, um, where a developer will hire us and say, you know, I want to, I have some ideas, uh, but I want to hear what your ideas are too, and take a look at this market and understand it. So the first thing we do is try to understand who's the target audience. So we spend a lot of time touring competitive properties, talking to baristas and bartenders and tattoo parlors and whoever it is that's relevant in that neighborhood to get a vibe and an understanding of the people and the character of a place. Not Who who are the people that know the most about the vibe? Is there any specific um, Um, hairstylists? Uber drivers are also (laughs) really informative people, actually, because they, they interact with people in a really funny way. Every day, all day. How so? Um, well, you know, people sitting in the back of an Uber 
almost some of them pretend the Uber driver's not there. And some of them, you know, interact with that person. Um, and they also, they know all about where different destinations are in different neighborhoods. And so they're, they're kind of interesting to talk to. I would say, other than that, um, bartenders are also a really great source of information. Um, we talk to employers as well, to recruiters. We talk to all kinds of people to get a, an understanding of what's driving a neighborhood and a place whether it's economic or leisure, or what is it? Um, and then what are the, who are the kinds of people that are attracted to this place and why? And that's rarely a demographic issue. It's generally a psychographic. And so what, who are these people? And for those guests that, um, that are, for our listeners that don't know what psychographic profile, what is yeah. that exactly? So it's, it's, who is, what are people's interests and how do they live and, and what do they care about? And, um, you know, who are they as people more so than, you know, where there's statistics. Okay. Yep. <laughs> so we get a which sense is, of all Which that. is sort of messy, right? By it's definition. very messy. Yeah. yeah. And and if you're a super scientific person, you, you might struggle a little bit with this. We say it's a mix of art and science. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get a sense of, of what what's driving a place and who are the people. Um, and so that to your question, that's one leg of that stool, right? And then the developer has a vision. And then we take a look at the market and um, at the property itself. Is the developer's vision trustworthy in your experience, or is it something that needs to be questioned because they have other motivations that may ultimately boomerang back and hurt them? Um, um, you know, I think uh, some developers um, come with a blank slate and say, you know, help me to understand this and and provide me with some ideas, and, and then I'll grow those ideas from there. Um, others say, I have an idea. I'd like to prove it out. Um Different developers are, all developers are different, just like all people are different. Okay. And, um, and they all have different things that motivate them based on the kind of company that they work for as well. Or if they're on their own, um, there are some developers that, you know, are all about leaving a legacy. And there are some that, you know, that's not the structure of the money that comes to support their project. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, so it it really depends. But you <laughs> do listen kinda, to them as well, and oh yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. they're the client. Right. Um, and and the best uh, opportunities are when that's a collaborative client that wants to think together with us. And so we'll come up with some ideas and some concepts about what is a project stake in the ground, what should it stand for, and then a lot of times we have a lot of good constructive conversations uh, with them where where they'll take it a little farther too. Um, I would say that's a a a pretty common common occurrence. We we love that when there's an opportunity to, you know, to create with someone. More minds tend to be better than one in isolation. You sound like you're kind of the interstitial glue that kind of ties together. Hopefully the yeah, we come up with a lot of ideas. Uh, we are idea people, so um, so we'll come up with understanding who we're trying to attract and what do they want, and then what does that mean? What can that? What form can that take in the market? And what kind of story can this project have, whether it's because, like, a trace, there was a historical story, or maybe there's a location story, or um, there's a product type, you know, there's, there's like, a, a loft um, opportunity. What is it? There's, there's lots of different pieces and parts, and you put all the threads together, and you come up with, with an idea. Great. That and makes sense. It does. It totally makes <laughs> sense. So, so storytelling is just fascinating to me, because to me, it's one of the most ancient mm-hmm. art forms. It doesn't require... A, anything about your imagination and a voice. That's how we learn and as children. It, it's how we learn. And yeah, I have five-year-olds, so all we do is, you know, one of his last things at night is, Abba, can you tell me a story? Mm-hmm. So when you were a little boy, you know, so yeah. I was trying to relate 
So again, um, I'd love to dive into that a little bit more in terms of the work that you do and maybe start with just a story that you created that made a project um, particularly successful. Well, I think I think the Danforth is is a good story. Um, you know, the Danforth is the uh, the new um, project that sits above the Whole Foods, right in um, Capitol Hill on Madison and Broadway. Yeah, um, and it's a it's an interesting project that came to us kind of early on in the in the development process, and the developer said. You know, this is this is an iconic project for us. It's uh, you know sits in this in this highly visible iconic um, location, Broadway um, and Madison. Broadway Amazing. and Madison. Yeah. It's it's uh, you know sort of ground zero there for traffic coming in and out of Madison Park, up and down Broadway, and uh, so they really wanted us to sort of help them create uh, an identity and a story uh, around this project because they're they're. Uh, goal for this project was um, to have it be sort of a legacy um, that was going to going to sort of stay with them and and um, can I you say uh, who the developer was? Yeah, it's Columbia Pacific Advisors. So local, uh, they're local um, here. They do a lot of work in um, uh, senior housing, um, different types. They don't do a ton in uh, in multifamily for rent. Um, so this was this was sort of a, an interesting new um, project for for them, um, and they're very very committed to doing something meaningful um, and special um, for the for the community, um, and really uh, being respectful of the community that they were going to be a part of. Um, so we really delved into into that project and sort of understood the dynamics that sort of make up that uh, that kind of interesting. We sit right on that corner of where First Hill meets uh, Capitol Hill meets Seattle University. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we started to started to sort of think about um, the audience segments from kind of all three of those um, disciplines, um, the students and the and the um, staff population at Seattle University from the medical community that that meet, uh, that dots First Hill to um, the energy of the Pike Pine and, and that particular part of, of Capitol Hill became sort of this interesting, what we call kind of almost an anchor point. Um, and this project in sort of its its prominent location became kind of this anchor of where these these three neighborhoods um, intersect. So what we what we talked about was uh, for for the ultimate story for the project is um, how do we how do we sort of absorb all of those um, interesting dynamic tensions of those energies together into into a singular project? Um, so the name itself, the Damforth, Damforth is is a type of anchor uh, for a boat, sort of a, a prominent kind of anchor type. Um, well known in in sort of the boating area, um, and that sort of became a um, sort of a guiding principle, if you will, for um, the vision for this project. Um, so the the ideas of sort of the intellect of of Seattle University, um, the energies of Capitol Hill, um, and as well as the history of First Hill as as Seattle's uh, you know really first neighborhood um, for Seattle's first families, sort of all culminate into into the DNA of this project. So from the amenity space planning to you know the artwork that lives and breathes throughout the throughout the project, top to bottom, um, and then ultimately the the marketing campaign for how that project got 
launched into the marketplace was all very storied and literally anchored in uh, the dynamics of, of those three neighborhoods and the three energies that, that come together there. And then how did that story get conveyed to the people that chose to live there? Or yeah. Was it like, so that was, how, why was it meaningful? Yeah. Well, it was meaningful. Um, the first thing we identified with that project, obviously, is is everything we do starts with the target audience and, and sort of, uh, like Allison was talking about, sort of the psychographic. So, yeah, for sure we're going to get millennials. Yep, for sure we're going to get tech workers and we're going to get medical workers. We're going to get people related to the to the university. What are the commonalities that, that draw those audience segments together? And one of those is they're they're sort of intellectually curious. These are people who are lifelong learners. They pursue opportunities to uh, expand knowledge, um, to engage in in learning uh, activities. You talked about Atlas Obscura. These are people who would who would relish an opportunity to engage in an Atlas Obscura event that gave them knowledge. They would participate in the you know historic Seattle's walking tour of of the First Hill neighborhood. Um, again, sort of that that idea of being intellectually curious. There are also people who, um, you know, sort of fancy themselves um, or and also are motivated by doing good, um, changing the world, whether it's the medical community that, you know, is has a bit more of an altruistic um, sort of approach to life, to the learners at Seattle University that sort of strive for for knowledge to, to do better, to, um, you know, quite honestly, our, our young tech guys that, you know, are, are motivated to develop the next code or the next product that's going to sort of change the way that, that the world works. So they, they sort of see themselves as, as people who want to give back in and better the world. So when we launched that, that project into the marketplace, um, rather than developing a, a campaign that was focused on, hey, we've got one and two bedroom apartments uh, with stainless steel appliances and quartz countertops. Um, the the strategy was really kind of rooted in we had to establish the Danforth as a caring neighbor, as a denizen of this of this neighborhood, as somebody very local and and um, relatable to to the folks that were going to move in. So you personified um, the building. With the characteristics, we absolutely personified the building, and yeah. and the the entire strategy was also was built on um, sort of giving back. So the campaign kind of hinged around. Um, we engaged with three key charities um, that were were um, related to each one of those those communities um, and relevant to to the people who were going to be living there. Um, and the developer made a commitment to. Uh, to donate uh, twenty five hundred dollars to each one of these each one of these charities, um, and then the charity that could garner the most votes um, from uh, from the general public um, would get an additional five thousand dollar donation. Hmm. So the the campaign, if you will, sort of hinged around, um, hey, the Danforth is here. We're about sort of giving back to the to the community. Tell us tell us who your favorite charity is. Give us give us a vote. Um, the the charities obviously were active in this in this process of um, garnering support for their for their organizations, um, and people got to pick and, and vote. And then it sort of culminated with a, a local community event with the awarding of the of the donations, um, and then the the winner, if you will. Um, and what was really ended up being cool about it was um, the night before we were we were going to launch this event or or announce the winner. Um, the developer came to us, Columbia Pacific, and said, hey, 
we'd like to award it to everybody. Oh. We want to give everybody uh, an additional uh, amount of money, $5,000. So um, so that became sort of the big surprise. And it was just really important for them to, to one, you know, be committed to, to sort of doing something that benefited the community. Um, and we had, a, we had a really great response to that. Awesome. Yeah. Well, good. Well, now kind of moving, zooming up, kind of looking into the future. Um, so you get a chance to really assess what people need from where they live, right, From on all levels. And society is really changing. I mean, it's always been changing, but it seems to me that what, what I'm seeing in Seattle is more people being very mobile, coming here for work, not necessarily committed to being here for the rest of their lives because they are people who can transport their work and their social world through social media or just, the, you know, the, the mobility of all their peers globally. And there's other factors, but I'm just wondering what you're seeing in terms of the, you're helping developers design homes so that they meet, the, they're congruent with the needs of people today, not yesterday, right? Because that's why people would buy or move into something new because it's, you know, new. For sure. Um, and so what do you see as trends that really need to be factored into the kind of the housing of the future uh, and the communities of the future that we should be looking at now? I think there's um, – so first of all, the real estate development world, as you may know, is <laughs> slow to innovate. Yes. Um, whereas you look at the automotive industry, is is quick to innovate. And real estate um, just is a large moving ship that turns very slowly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that looking forward, there's some interesting examples um, happening around the country. And uh, one of the interesting examples is really about co-living. Um, and and really it reflects some of the what's important in the sharing economy. You know, if you look at just think about how different it is today in Seattle with all of the car shares and bike shares and electric you know bike shares and every kind of shares. So you go to San Francisco and and they have um, you know like Vespa share basically, mm. um, which is really kind of interesting. And and then other cities that have scooters. Um, that uh, that are a big topic of conversation and whether they're safe or not. But a lot of different um, uh, modes of transportation that are being shared. Or um, you look at like Audi has a, um, a car share program of their own that mm-hmm. you could participate in. Um, and, and it's not just cars or it's WeWork and it's how people are not only that their life is mobile, their work is mobile, they don't have to go sit at a desk in an office and do all the same things that everybody always had to do. And to be valuable um, contributing members yeah. of society. Yeah. No. We have a we have a friend who um, is uh, working um, in a very large position in a very large local tech company, and he's tra- traveling around the world in a boat doing it. You know, he doesn't have to go to an office. So... As you look forward, uh, this co-living is starting to pop up more in San Francisco, Boston, New York. What is co-living? Um, co-living is is kind of it's interesting. It's taking the idea of a of a dorm almost, and the way that dorms work today, which is very different from how when we were living in a dorm, um, where everybody pays for their own room and they have a shared kitchen and such. And and you could say um, that maybe the the um, apodments were a version of this, but it's really not. Um, the co-living has uh, extensive amenities um, that are shared spaces, and everyone has their own space, but they share, uh, they have their own room, and then they share within a suite. Um, and we're seeing that in other cities, not really seeing that here yet. But I think that's an interesting way that the next generation, Generation Z, is very comfortable moving into something like that, because... 
Um, they like living with other people. It's social. Not everybody, of course. Not everybody's the same. But people who like to be around others, it's a, it's a positive way to go. It kind of is, in a way, to me, um, the for rent version of the co-op um, that we don't see much of here on the West Coast, but that perhaps that'll have a, a comeback as well. So are people um, more bound down by sort of a community, a kind of a shared sharing a space with other people? It seems like we're moving away from that with mobility, but you're saying no, not necessarily. So people actually want to have a community based around shared some, some people, spaces. Yeah. Some people want to, um, particularly younger people that are also looking for, you know, some efficiency with their budget, um, but that want to have all the nice new bells and whistles. This is a way to, to have all of that. But to, you know, I don't necessarily have to have all my own space for all of my own things because maybe I don't really have that many things because I value experiences over objects. So is this like an apartment on a vast scale? Because with a greater scale, there's more efficiency to deliver all these other services to the same people. And it's, you know, the apartments tend to be very um, sparse right. <laughs> um, and, and, and not... Um, a luxury product, let's right. say, whereas this these co-living communities that are popping up in other cities, not all of them are, some of them are apartment type, but there's a lot of them now that are being designed that are, I mean, there's one in Boston that's um, under construction, it's like luxury living for millennials. Mm. <laughs> like, well, you know, it's not really actually for millennials, I think, because the millennials have kind of aged out of that. It's, it's for the next generation. But... Um, it's an interesting way. I don't think all real estate is going there. I don't think all real estate should go there. It's just a, an interesting piece that is coming out of a trend of, of the sharing economy. Okay, great. When you said developer, the development industry tends to be very sort of backward looking or very slow, a big moving shift that's hard to steer uh, compared to consumer products, right, which are mm -hmm. malleable and produced every year in a new shape and form, almost has to be, right, to stimulate consumer demand. So if you could speak to developers in terms of like steering the ship or putting engines on it, where else do you think it needs to go? As someone who's sort of, you're responsible for sort of imagining and selling and renting spaces. Um, what are the things that you think that are missing today that are resonant with the sort of where, how people are shifting, you know, whether it's features, components, mm -hmm. you know, the overall vision, what needs to happen to make places better uh, for those that live there? I think that's a that's a really interesting thought, and and we've been having a lot of discussion internally, and and I may have a somewhat contrarian view sometimes uh, to folks. I think um, you know if if I were, and and it really does vary. Like Allison said, we we work all around around the country, so every market and every sort of neighborhood sometimes has has sort of different needs and and you know different audience segments. But if I look at Seattle overall. Um, and if if I think about the the urban core and the dynamics that are are changing this city on a on a daily basis, I think this last wave of development has been all about um, creating internal amenities and and uh, conversations and community. Um, I think that our internal city, to the building you're internal saying. to the building. Mm -hmm. I think that our city is becoming so interesting and so dynamic and there's so much more happening at the street level um, that there's opportunity to get people outside and that there's opportunity for the development community and partnership with cities and municipalities 
um, to really think about the the outside environment that we're creating, um, which doesn't take away from the need or the desire for creating uh, great living experiences inside a building. Um, but I'm almost seeing the the amenity needs happening outside um, to create more kind of spontaneous interaction. You know, I, interaction I, with other people. Inter, interaction with other people with other places uh, with other places. You know, there's there's only so much you know we can do to you know continue to evolve and and innovate. You know what what can happen in, inside four walls, but there's so much that happens um, just at the at the street level that I think is a very interesting energy. Um, some of that may have some personal bias. You know, my uh, uh, Bud and I moved downtown, and and we have this whole new life that really is about experiencing our city right. um, and engaging with it. Um, and I think that you know, just again, the changing dynamics of the city making it make it so much more interesting mm-hmm. um, that I think that there's just more opportunity to absorb and and connect um, with that energy and and almost to a certain degree kind of force us to get outside and live and breathe and and see what's what's happening on a daily basis. During college, I spent a summer in New York City and I lived on the Upper West Side and then I worked um, on the Lower West Side on, and I worked for the subway system in New York, but I chose to walk. It was like... 80 blocks. Right. But it was just, I got through the garment district yeah. and, I got, and it was just uh, scary at times, fascinating at times, right. but in all the smells and people and voices, yeah. and it was just fascinating. And Seattle is changing, yeah. it's becoming much denser, you know, going back to Roger's point. Yeah. That, and that is very dynamic. You know, and I, I think what's, I don't want to steer the conversation, but I think what's, what's great about it is, you know, you think about the history of the city. Right. And Seattle was sort of born on, you know, people coming here looking for opportunity, you know, during the gold rush and, and sort of seeing Seattle as, um, you know, their chance to to sort of lay claim to to their future. Um, and maybe it was sort of the the, the area that misfits sort of, sort of landed and and people kind of came together and, and sort of celebrated their uniqueness. Um, what I really love about what's happening in the city is that people aren't assimilating, but we're we're embracing everybody's differences and their cultures and the their languages and their customs and everything that sort of makes them who they are and where they came from, internationally and nationally, mm-hmm. um, which I think is is really fun because I think it it creates you know just such a, it's it's sort of the the reimagination of where where our city started. So you do travel and work with real estate. In lots of cities mm-hmm. across the country and the continent. So, what is is there anything else about Seattle that you've observed, um, particularly Seattle today or yesterday, that's really distinct from other cities, even West Coast cities? Well, that I mean, the really obvious one is our natural environment around us and the beauty. And every time we go somewhere else and you fly back home, it's like, oh, yeah, look at that. Mm. You know, <laughs> we're back. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Look at those mountains. Mm. Look at that water. Mm-hmm. Um, Seattle is also a is an open minded city and a welcoming city to people who are who are different, and and always has been to Jim's point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a a key to the kinds of creativity that happen here is that there isn't a desire for sameness. Instead, there's an appreciation of oh, you're different from me. That's cool. Mm. So great. And then I always ask our guests to share a place in Seattle that matters to them, and maybe that isn't known by other people, or maybe it is, but 
Ellison? Well, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's expected, but it, I can't help it. It's the Pike Place market. I love the market. And, Why? um, you know, I moved here, um, from Philadelphia and from Center City, Philly. And, uh, uh, I was raised in Boston, and um, I have a love of historic places. But I also, it, to me, it speaks to what Seattle is. You have this fresh fish and produce and flowers and 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 people that are creative selling their wares. And in the background, you have the Olympics and the sound and the ferries. And to me, it just it is quintessential Seattle. Always will be. And every time I go there, I get chills. Um, and I'm just so thankful that it that it's it's there and hope, and hope it always will be. I always look down at the bricks, the donors that help save mm-hmm. it, and I'm like stepping on them. It feels almost sacrilegious. Yeah, say thank you. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jim Goldberg, is there a place in Seattle or in the area that matters to you? It's funny. I was I was thinking about that last night, and and um, I think for me, it's it's a little broader. It's it's the city as a whole. Um, there's a little bit of pride now uh, that I I wear as being a a local Seattleite, and so for me I I really love all the parts of our city. I love the opportunity to engage with our city um, from all of the different neighborhoods, um, from having my my favorite little coffee shop in in Wallingford, uh, Irwin's Bakery, and, and, you know, knowing the the baristas there to, you know, going out to explore the farmer's market in Ballard, to walking downtown now to, to you know, for my daily life and, and errands and, and, you know, certainly a, a passion for, for the Pike Pine and, and Capitol Hill just because, you know, being, being so engaged in that, in that neighborhood early on. Um, so maybe kind of a, a lame. <laughs> <laughs> well, a contrarian. A you're a contrarian, contrarian, and you're also yeah. obviously a great explorer. So if you're out in any exploring. of these neighborhoods, you might see Jim walking around. <laughs> That's right. That's so, right. Yeah. Um, so Red Propel is currently working on a study on Generation Z. What's Generation Z? So Gen Z is the uh, younger generation uh, coming up behind our our millennials. Um, you know, there's been so much discussion about uh, the millennial audience, which is now aging to 40 and, and above now, um, with the younger cohort of that graduating college. So uh, this next generation behind it sort of has its own um, kind of nuances. So uh, from, a, from a development standpoint, we've been really kind of looking into who are these people? Um, you know, what are sort of the, the situations that are going to be shaping um, them and their um, their mindsets and their values and and how they may uh, want to live going forward? So uh, awesome. we've been having some conversations on that. So front. off into the future. So if you are Generation Z, which would put what, what age level is that? I think the oldest are around 21, 22 right so, now. So if you're a Gen Z person, uh, you can email edwardk at ekrag.com and, and you could participate in this um, study. Sure. And then if you'd also like to receive a white paper that Red Propeller will put together as a result of it, send an email as well. Edwardk at ekrag and we'll connect you with Red Propeller. You can visit our website for our podcast and you will uh, you can also click on a link to Red Propeller and learn more about all their projects and what they do. Um, fabulous show. So nice to have you, Allison and Jim. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Join us next time for a conversation with Stacy Siegel, the executive director of the Seattle Architecture Foundation, whose mission is connecting people to places, mainly architecture, design, and the history of our city. Stacy believes that the more you engage with design, the more you feel connected to your changing city. And when you join us, you'll experience surprising ways in which you'll discover that practically everything we touch, see, or hear 
buildings and even things that are natural, like parks, are intentionally designed and the result of a design process. So join us. It'll be a fascinating conversation with Stacy. Thank you, as always, for listening to EK On The Go. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or any other place where podcasts can be found. You'll probably find us there. And if you have a place in Seattle that you care about, please shoot me an email. Again, edwardk at ekreg.com. And as always, thank you for turning in. We look forward to talking with you next time.